Are your choices really yours, or are they influenced by how the message is framed? Let's go find out. Residency can be such a letdown when it comes to building your financial foundation, but it truly doesn't have to be that way. If you're a physician wanting to take control over your financial future and take back the freedom you deserve, come hang out with this money nerd. No long hours or sleepless nights, just you, me, and the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Newman, and welcome back to the show. Now, you're probably thinking it's Wednesday. What the heck is going on? Did Ryan mess up and release some show midweek on accident? Fair enough. I've been known to mix up a few episodes here and there, but nope. Many of you know him as the physician philosopher, and he is my co-host today. Yeah, co-host. You heard it right. Jimmy, TPP, whatever you want to call him, is joining the financial residency team for at least a few months on a Wednesday segment, a new Wednesday segment, where we go off the deep end into a ton of different personal finance topics. But knowing us, we're probably going to end up talking a ton on behavioral finance. And kicking off this new Wednesday show for the month of October, we're going to be doing a behavioral finance series. So what's the show all about? Well, we're about to give you some perspective as to how you interpret information and to hopefully cause you to be more aware of how messages are crafted and framed to you. But before we jump in, it's time for that important disclaimer. And it's probably the least fun part of the show, yet the most important. I'm honored that you're here because this podcast is about personal finance and helping you navigate your financial journey. And while some of these topics aren't the sexiest, you're here and that's what matters. I work hard at delivering great information in the podcast, but here's the catch. I don't know anything about you or what your financial needs are. So please consult your attorney, your CPA, or reach out to me, a fee-only financial planner, before taking any action or making decisions affecting your hard-earned money. So Jimmy, welcome to the show, my friend. Let's jump in and talk about framing. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. I appreciate you having me here, and I'm looking forward to co-hosting these episodes with you. It's going to be a blast. This is going to be super fun, man. Absolutely. So yeah, framing. Framing, the idea there is that in any situation in life, whether it's financial or a medical situation, the lens with which we view things can be viewed in a positive frame or a negative frame. And it has a profound impact on our decision-making and our interactions with patients and the financial industry and all sorts of stuff. And so that's the basic idea. And to relate this to some you know medical topics so people can understand, they've actually done studies on this and uh, one of them was done in the 80s by Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman, who are kind of famous for getting behavioral finance started. And uh, one study they did actually looked at patients who had lung cancer and they needed to have a resection of that lung cancer. They were given an option to do a highly successful surgery that if they made it through it, the surgery would pretty much eradicate their chances of the cancer recurring. That's at least how it was presented to the patient back then. And it was framed two different ways to two different groups. The first group, they basically got the information and were told, hey, highly successful surgery, and you have a 90% chance of making it off the table, 90% chance of surviving the surgery. And the other group was told the same fact said differently in a negative frame that they had a 10% chance of dying or 10% chance of mortality by having the surgery that was going to be highly successful if they made it. Well, the group that was told they had a 90% chance of success for making off the table, something like 75 or 80% of those patients proceeded with the surgery. And the group that were told they had a 10% chance of mortality, which is the same statistic just said differently, only half of them proceeded. And so this impacts the way that you consent your patients. It impacts your financial decisions and and a lot more. So I'm, I'm excited to kind of dive into this topic, but that's a medical example to kind of get things started. 
Yeah, I, I love it. So it's amazing how different that the percentages are just by the way that the messages are framed. And it happens all day, every day. It's it's around us all the time, right? Yeah. And and I, I actually read one that wasn't medical. This is a while back. And I can't remember. It's someone else said it. This is not me, but it, I thought it was brilliant. What if you were America and I was negotiating with you to deliver this amazing technology that would increase your economy it would allow the basically your uh, whole entire world to shift the the way that you communicated and and moved throughout your day but it would kill 40,000 people a year would you do it and the majority of people mm. said well no why why would i do that people to die yeah except for that innovation was a car <laughs> okay so I use mine every day Everyone, yeah. Now, if I decided to to strip you of your car, you probably wouldn't be super excited in that, and neither would everyone else trying to commute to work if they had to walk or bike or whatever. But framed in a negative way, most people were basically turned away and going, well, I don't want 40,000 people to die. Why would we do that? Yet, I would never give up my car. No, and I think most people wouldn't. And that's that's kind of the point, right? That when it's spun negatively, uh, we as humans don't like that. We really hate it. And so we would much rather have a positive spin on something. And that's why it's important when you hear something in a negative context to kind of flip the script and see if you can think about it in a positive manner and it might actually change your decision-making. Yeah. I mean, and, and so before we jump into the kind of the finance side of this, like it can't be avoided. So as we're talking about no. different things, you're like, well, I just won't do that. Well, I just won't think of it that way. It's not possible. Everything no. that you do, all the visual cues, the audio cues, the communication, everything has some sort of framing, either positive or negative. And what we're hoping that you guys listening get out of this is that you can just acknowledge that it exists. And as you're going about your day, just be aware of framing and how it might impact you, the way that you perceive data, the way that you might look at a product that's either being sold to you or that you want to buy. Just be aware because everyone has the same battle. Jimmy and I every day get bombarded with the same crap that you get bombarded with, you know, and and it really matters how things are framed. Yeah. And actually to kind of back up a little bit, I guess. So behavioral finance, just the field in general came from the two people I mentioned earlier, but before in economics, it was kind of classically and traditionally taught that people are rational and that they're going to optimize their decisions so that they pick the best product at the least price. And after they started studying this stuff, they realized that that's just not true. Even in highly intelligent, highly educated people, we're also human and we all err to these same behavioral finance topics. And you know, it's called heuristics and bias. But the, the principle remains the same, that if you're human, you're going to have trouble with this. And so the entire idea is that if you're aware of it, maybe you can do something about it. But if you're not, you're certainly going to succumb to it every time. Yeah. Well, I think even being aware of it, we're still going to succumb to it. Like it's it's out maybe a lot. I mean, I, I definitely do sometimes. Yeah. True. Oh, all the, I mean, I do too. And, and I know better and I've studied this stuff and I deal with finance every day and I'm yeah. by no means perfect when it comes to these things, because the, inf- the way that information is presented to us is sometimes deceptive and it, yeah. it preys on emotions. It preys on fears. And to be honest, I mean, we know this, it's tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars are invested in understanding human behavior, our emotions. And I think it was Walmart and I might be wrong. It could have been Target or one of these, but they actually had cameras like eye level. And so as people are going around shopping, have you heard this? They went, this is a while back, but they were, as people go around shopping, they were just trying to understand 
not like what you were buying, because obviously they know that when you check out whatever, but where your eye went on some of the displays. Really? And they were trying to understand that because, you know, as they package different things and they obviously have people that create products that pay them more for different locations, things like that, they want to understand, well, where's naturally your eye going to tend to go and what was that? And they'll, they were mm-hmm. trying it between different displays. It's fascinating when you step back and, and try to think of that. Now, some people might be pretty pissed, you know, kind of hearing that. You know, newsflash, Google knows everything about yeah. you. Big so brother's watching you. It's already there. They're already listening. They're transcribing this podcast probably as I'm talking in it. But is if you're aware and just understand how things are being pitched and, and shown to you, you might be able to stop and think and go, hmm, you know, how is this being said to me? Is this being said in a way that that is is in my best interest or not? And that's and that's really hard to do. And we're we can jump into some of the financial pieces on this, but Just overarching high level, you know, there's a lot of money in this business trying to figure out how we all think and what our emotions do and how they can frame a message to get us to want to buy it or a visual cue, a video that pops up on your Instagram feed as an ad, right? Those are, they have AB testing and split testing to try to see like, is this going to get Jimmy to click more than, than this or not? And it's, it's fascinating when you kind of pull back the curtain to look at that. So Jimmy, what do you think? How how do you want to relate this to finance? Kind of digging in first. Well, you know, I think that the the best example, probably the most important I can think of, is how people deal with rising and falling markets. So, uh, in particular, when you know when there's a recession or a correction or you know a bear market, people often look at that situation and for various reasons, they all of a sudden have this doomsday scenario that things are going to continue to fall and that they need to sell their sell their stocks or their their index funds or whatever you know what they're, whatever they're holding in their portfolio that actually can be framed in a different way because we know that a correction is going to happen what once every year and a half one and a half year something like that and so if we know that and we're prepared for that then the way this can be framed positively isn't that stocks are falling and that we need to worry we need to understand that we expect corrections to happen and we know that market history has taught us that the vast majority of time it comes back up and so really what we have the opportunity to do there isn't to lose money but to buy stocks on sale and that frame allows you to be excited about the potential. And particularly if you're early in your career now, you know, I'm you know, three years out from residency. And so I would love nothing more than for there to be a giant correction or recession right now so that I can pile money into the stock market and plan for it to come back up. You know, the opportunity to buy stocks on sale actually gets me excited because I framed this, you know, a little differently. And, um, and I know that, you know, with market history that that actually should be end up being a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, our parents would not be very excited. Right. As they're nearing retirement, or maybe I don't know if your parents are in retirement or not, but you know, as they're ending now, granted their risk tolerance is likely to be very different than yours, but they don't want to see a market correction, right? That's not them. But for us and being as you know, somewhat younger, we want to see that because stocks are on sale. And I look at it as kind of like, you know, cereal at the the grocery store. You walk by, it's you know, five bucks a box. You're like, all right, well, kids gotta eat cereal, so you pick one out and you're done. But you come in the next day, it's 50% off. Are you going to go, oh my God, I can never buy cereal again. I, 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 this is like too much. I'm going to be up worrying about this. Like, no, you're going to be like, oh gosh, well, it was this. I'm just going to buy two today. It's the same thing. Why not? Right. I'll stock up. It's how we should yeah, really view our investments, right? Long-term horizon, not worrying about the day-to-day movements. Please stop checking your stuff every day. Like, Please. I mean, people that do that. Hey, my, my investments moved a little bit today. Yes. 
Like it's, it's okay. Even like week by week is kind of silly. You know, when you see, we've had some volatility recently in the markets in 2019, you know, markets have been moving, which is totally fine. Trump does a tweet, things go up or down. Like it's, it's crazy to think, but some people, everything, right. But you see it on the internet and I'm not blasting any listener. I'm saying, I see it literally everywhere. Oh my gosh. Well, you know, this is it. This is the recession. Like we're, we're all screwed. It's like, well, guess what? You know, we're sitting here in September and market moves. We haven't seen these prices since late. Think about it. June will be okay. Everyone like it's a few months. Markets are volatile. It doesn't move straight up. Yeah. You know, and, and that's important to realize because, uh, and actually to jump back to a point you made earlier, and they've done studies on this and, and people that check their portfolio more often are more likely to make a change. And if you're more likely to make a change, you're more likely to do something that's going to negatively impact your portfolio. And so it, I actually, I laugh at people. I've got a buddy at work who, um, he's always scrolling on his iPhone, checking stocks and, and, uh, he's always saying, Hey, you know, Jimmy, do you know what the market's doing today? And I'm like, no, nah, man, I haven't, I haven't looked at the market since my last quarterly update. You know, like I, I don't ever look at the market because I know that if I look at the market, I'm more likely to make a change and I'm going to rebalance once a year and I'm going to check in every quarter just to see how my net worth is doing. But I very intentionally don't look at the market and it's because I know that I'm more likely to actually negatively impact things because of my frame. If, if I see it's negative, it's going down, there's a correction or recession, man, it's hard to stay, stay the course. And that's one of the most important things you can do financially. It is really tough. I mean, it, it's, it's, especially if you're not in this all day, every day. And I feel more immune to it because I work in this all day. I know the math. I know how these things work, but still, you know, when it's your own money, it's hard to separate yourself from that. It really oh, is. Yeah. And everyone thinks that, oh, because you're an advisor, you're perfect. Like, no, you think about these things. And when it's, your, when it's something for you, like your health now as a physician, like I know my wife self-diagnoses herself all the time and then goes back <laughs> and I do, and I do this and I joke with her. I'm like, well, I webbed him. I did this on WebMD, honey. Like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and yeah. then of course I get yelled at, but, uh, you know, when you, when you look at the markets all the time, you're more likely to trade. You're more likely to try to time the market. You're likely to think that you actually know what the market is going to do. And I'm here to tell you, no one does. Not the talking heads on CNBC, not your financial advisor who's telling you to, you know, pick active investments. No one. No one can tell you what the market will do tomorrow. And if they could, they would be trillionaires and sitting on the beach because they figured it all out and they could figure out the future. No one can. Isn't it like the Magellan Fund's the only actively managed fund that beat the index it was respective, like, you know, respectively benchmarked to? Consistently, and the only reason why it never reverted back to the mean is because Peter, blanking on his last name, he retired. He he just said, "I'm done." He was like Barry Sanders retired at his prime and just never had the opportunity for that fund to come back down to where where it should have been. Well, there's some statistics around it, and and I don't know the exact. So let's just say, hey, disclaimer: these are rough estimates. But <laughs> over a, a over a ten year period, the passive investments or index funds have beat the active investors, the mutual funds and people who are actively trading over 90% of the time. Yep. So if we had 10 funds laid out, only one is going to beat passive investing. What are the odds you pick it? Well, not, I mean, how about this? Most people don't just pick one fund. They'll pick half a dozen or a dozen funds. I've seen people come to us that have had other advisors that are in 30 or 40 different things with a $150,000 account. And I'm going, 
this is mind-blowing. Like you should have a $15 million account if they were fully yeah. going to diversify like this. This is crazy. And no, it's insane. And and then yeah, being able to statistically, I mean, let's say you just had three. What's the odds on that? I don't know off the top of my head. I'm not that smart to figure out the probability that if one in ten is going to oh man, you know it's gonna happen. As I say this, I already know it. Someone out there is gonna be listening and gonna email. They're literally typing this right now, like you idiot, yeah. it's this. Yeah. Right. I've and I can't do it on the fly. Yeah. I, I I did the math in my head while driving and listening That's to two right. kids yell in the back. God, why can't you get this yeah. right? Nope. No, but it's you're you're totally right. So the Spiva scorecard is kind of what I point my residents to, which keeps up with uh, what percentage of index funds outpace the actively managed funds that are out there. And yeah, it's like ninety ninety five percent in every single index. So so throw a tar, you know a, a dart at at the the board here. You, you know you're likely going to get one out of those ten are going to do it. And if you own three funds, what's the odds that all three of those are going to? It's it's crazy. So Excellent. why why try to pretend pay more fees because usually those are one to two percent expense ratios inside those funds because they are actively trying to beat the index and just go with the index fund itself that's a fraction of the cost you know 0.05 to 0.1 percent depending on what that index fund is and be in the camp that you're more correct 90 percent plus of the time right and if we if we frame this positively right you have a 90 to 95 percent chance of success if you just pick an index fund so if you frame that in the positive manner as opposed to the negative, well, you know, there's a 5 or 10% chance you're not going to. You have a 90 95% chance of beating the vast majority of investors in the market by just picking an index fund. And it's going to make you check things less often because it buys everything in the index. So it's like a behavioral finance monster. It's great. It, it, it makes you do all the right things well and none of the bad things poorly. Yeah. And, and, and you know, yes, it's not going to beat everyone every time. And that's okay. Because the more that you guys hopefully have listened and hear me kind of talk on these things, you don't have to nail everything perfectly. We've had guests on that have screwed up things for 20 years, righted the ship and going to retire in five. Like it's okay. Now outsized, you know, incomes can allow you to do that if you're a pediatrician and I always pick on them because- like it can a little bit more pediatricians what did they do to you i just married one but whatever i know i know uh (laughs) you know but you know if you're making 150 to 200 you can't afford to make some of these mistakes that an er physician or a surgeon can do and that's unfortunate and i can't solve or fix that but what i can do is tell you be more cautious don't make those mistakes don't try to time the market don't don't allow your expenses to inflate like crazy because you really can't afford to make those big shocks to, to your portfolio. One of the things I, I want to, before we kind of round this out on, on framing, is I want to talk about how you guys are targets. Physicians are, are really targeted by insurance and other salespeople in this. And there's a lot of framing around fear, right? Sure. Fear sells. I mean, we know this. You got the doom and glue guys that are pitching those, you know, whether it's gold and silver or whatever, which... I actually think in some form you can own some of that and it's totally fine. But sure. the idea of, hey, liquidate your retirement accounts and buy gold because we're about to doomsday and this is the only currency. Some of that's a bunch of crap. <laughs> but it still sells because it's fear and they understand this. And one of the oh, yeah. biggest people out there is David Sandler. And he created this training program and it's it's essentially like sales 101, right? It's Create anxiety in the prospect first, no matter what you're selling. I'm not talking just financial planning, but we see this a ton with insurance. And I know we see this a ton because 
we get a ton of people who have whole life insurance that were sold this product. It's Mm -hmm. a product that's meant to be sold, never meant to be bought. It's terrible. But they, they have what he's calling this is the submarine. And essentially what it does is it takes a prospect through a process and it's like walking through a submarine. And as you go through each section, I think there's like eight or 10 sections of the submarine. As you go through one, the idea is to first, you know, create the anxiety to get them to understand their pain points. And after each piece, close the door on this. So don't let them go back. Keep pushing forward. And at any point, if they start to revert back, go back to their pain point and their fear, right? Mm -hmm. It's all about framing, right? It's, it's trying to, to keep you in a mindset of not being rational to think, oh my gosh, well, what if I didn't have this and I was to pass away and, and to get your mind racing of, well, I want to make sure my kids are taken care of. I'll do anything. That's where they want to keep you in that, in that thing. And they chose a submarine and this, the reason why I'm going in detail on this one is because they have sold this training course and product to tens of thousands of salespeople and it's really heavily in the financial industry. Hmm. And I know this because I've come across it like a dozen times. They chose a submarine. I thought this was fascinating the way that they framed this. They chose submarines because they're silent and they run deep. They're stealthy and everything happens under the surface. Hmm. Sounds a little shady to me, but okay. It does sound shady. And then the next reason they, they, they chose a submarine to, to illustrate their point of sales, okay, is other battleships make their presence known. They advertise their intentions. They're noisy. And everyone sees what is happening. And that's a great segue into the financial industry because most financial advisors are actually, you know, salesmen masquerading as advisors. And, and that leads to a lot of these, these pitches and sales tactics. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting because I actually wrote a post recently about this, like the amount of money that was spent on selling products compared to educating Americans and creating financial literacy in our country. And it's like every, I forget the exact number, like every $25 that's spent on selling products, there's $1 spent on increasing financial literacy in our country, which is like 15th in the world, despite us having the most affluent country in I'm the surprised world. I'm surprised it's that high. I was going to say yeah, like one know. or 2%. Yeah. And so I, I, I can't remember the exact numbers. It's like 17 billion to, I forget. So that's what uh, yeah, the B, they, by the way, billion. Yeah, B, B is in billion. <laughs> to yeah, sell and, us all products. And that's one of the things that we run into, right? Is these people that, are saying that they're going to help us with our financial plan. And then yet they proceed to sell us products and whole life insurance, a common one. And I've actually just for entertainment value met with people before uh, to see what their pitch is on this stuff. Oh, the real life troll, huh? Yeah. Oh yeah. It's great. I love it. And then I get to educate them at the end. I tell people, go, you know, if you like steak, (laughs) go to the steak dinner, just don't buy. Yeah. Yeah. Go get a nice free dinner. It's all about you. Don't buy the steak. That's in my book. I love that example. Because ultimately you're paying for that steak and everyone everyone else's steak. Exactly. That's there. Yep. But uh, in in that pitch, the advisor, salesman, compared the whole life insurance to like three or four other kinds of products and, you know, wrote A, B, C, D at the top and didn't really give a name to any of them and proceeded to just explain the risks of all these other purchases and investment options and the wonderful nature of this one after he went through the risks of all of the others, just to try to hook, line, and sink the whole life insurance policy at the end after he pointed out the pain points in each of those policies. I mean, it's this exact submarine analogy. Absolutely. Uh, it's, 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 it's all about framing. Through it. Yeah. It's yeah, all about framing. Sure. It's how you craft the message and do it. And sales 
is is truly about framing. That's why I wanted to mm. kind of bring this in and tie it back because a lot of you have heard these sales pitches. Yeah. And if you haven't, if you're a med student or uh, you know an intern, you're gonna they're hear coming. them. They're coming, <laughs> right? They're they're absolutely coming. And, and here's the kicker: like even though you're you're an attending or you might have been in the field, you know, out of training for five, six, seven years, whatever, they're still coming. So you're gonna yeah. get them in the mail. You're gonna see it on TV. You're getting invited. It, the common thing that we see is, well, if it's good enough for Jimmy, it's good enough for me. I'll meet with this Northwestern Mutual advisor because that's who mm. Jimmy uses. And it's like, no, mm. no, 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 no. For the record, that's not true. <laughs> that is not. Jimmy uses himself, uh, J- Jimmy ABC. You know, yeah, the fr- it's it's all about framing. Sales is is about framing, and these products that are really targeted for all of us, they're spending a lot of money to understand our 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 emotions, our behaviors, our personalities, our relationships mm-hmm. with money, and it's being used against us, right? Because we're wired to think one way, and if they can prey upon it, they will. So. Mm-hmm. The message as we kind of round out the show here today is please just be aware of framing and how it relates to your finances and your everyday life. Just so it's one more thing to go, hmm, are they telling me this because it really is in my benefit or are they telling me this because they really just want me to buy their product and I might not need it? Absolutely. So Jimmy, we're going to do a journal club today and we are going to highlight our friend Wealthy Doc, who is anonymous. He's a great guy. And he had an article called A Dozen Dumb Money Mistakes Doctors Make. Mm. I could think of a dozen more, but <laughs> we'll go with his dozen, which he titled The Dumb Dozen. And I'll make sure that I link this on social media because I like what he does. He's, a, he's just, oh, yeah. he's got a cool way of thinking about finances. So there's a dozen of them. And let's just talk, you know, briefly, you know, one or two minutes on each one. So the first one is buying too much house. Yeah. You know, I actually, I love that part of his post because now I live in a really low cost of living area in North Carolina, so I could totally relate to this. And I realize that not everybody can, you're in, you know, California, so you probably couldn't, but my my house is currently one times my salary and, and it's great. We don't need anything more and we probably could use something a little less to be honest with you. But he makes the point that oftentimes doctors buy too much house. They spend two, three, four, five times of the salary on a house purchase and that immediately sinks your financial plan because you don't have any money left for it to go to any other thing that's actually important. And they don't realize that you know, the house isn't really going to be the end all be all. It's not going to make them happy. Yeah. It's just another thing. And and we had too much house in Vegas. I've talked about on the show and we since have moved to San Diego, which our house was expensive, but a lot smaller. And it was sure. way more manageable. Our house I think is like 1,650 square feet and it's plenty for you know, the four of us essentially. So, uh, and I just did a show on physician mortgages and one of the little kind of freebies that you could you know, kind of follow along with is how much house can you afford? And I kind sure. of just broke out a one pager. So if you guys haven't heard that show or didn't actually pay attention to to that, just go in the description of where you're listening to us now and, and you can download that um, and, and it'll help you understand how much house you really can afford. Number two is leasing a car. And I, I look at this, I get this one all the time. Well, I'm leasing, I can afford the payments. Like, well, great. You can afford the payment on a lot of things, but you're still in the hole. Let's not keep digging that hole deeper. If you're in real estate, so like, let's say you're a spouse, a physician, you're in real estate and you drive all the time and you can write this off and expense it, it might actually make sense in that industry to lease a car. But for 98% of us that are not driving, you know, six hours a day looking at property, whatever, 
and being able to expense all these things to do this. Leasing a car is a horrible idea. It is. Horrible idea. It totally is. But truth and transparency, I buy new cars and I'm one of the few people that will tell you that that's okay as long as you're doing everything else right. Well, I, yeah, I bought a new truck. Hey, so did I. I bought a new truck too. I'm going to be like you when I grow up. You and Bill, man. Bill Bill tortures me. We actually recorded some fun little clip at, at FinCon about uh, the, new, the new truck concept, which by the way, the new truck is five years old at this point. But yeah, I, I, I look and we'll talk about this at another time. But the, you know, if you budget, you do the things correct, you are you know, maxing your retirement accounts and you're spending money in a way that makes you happiest. And if a new truck is what makes you happiest and you've done everything else correctly, have at it, right? Because something else is going to give. You won't be able to go on that $15,000 vacation because yeah. you bought a new truck, yeah. right? Yeah, you can't do true. both. You can't have your cake and eat it too. But number three, no umbrella insurance. Now mm. I have driven this home every <laughs> Friday show that if you don't have umbrella insurance by now, I can't help you anymore. <laughs> like I can't because we've said it like for six months now, almost every Friday. But I have umbrella insurance just oh, for the record. Thank you. I was, was going to say, if you don't have umbrella insurance, this is the shortest stint of a co-host ever. Man, I didn't make it very far. Skipping disability insurance was his number four. This one's painful for me. So I'm sure some of your listeners know, but so I don't have personal disability insurance, but that was because I had a bad interaction with an insurance agent when I was a fourth year med student. And so I am painfully aware that skipping disability insurance is uh, a terrible thing for for your financial future. And, and actually it's trapped me in jobs. There's certain jobs that I can't take because I, you know, they don't have a good group policy, which is the only thing I could depend on at this point. Cause I was got, I got denied should had no business applying, but yeah, skipping disability insurance is honestly, I, if this was a, a ranked list, I'd probably put that first. And now I, I have a bit of a bias cause I don't, I can't get it and I want it. But that said, it's incredibly important to protect your, your human capital and, you know, is what wealthy doc calls it in this article. And it's catastrophic if something happens and, and you don't have it in place. I, I mean, I really do agree that I've talked about disability insurance. We've had people on talking about disability insurance as well. And we're going to be doing quite a bit next year on disability, but you know, this is one of those framing, right? It's, you know, they, they come in, they say, well, if you don't do this now, you'll never get it. Well, that's not mm. true. They're trying to sell you the product then and now, but you really should be getting it then. It just might not be from that person selling it. You got to do a little more due diligence. Agent. Exactly. So number five, having kids, but not having a will. Yeah. You know, I'm going to, I got to be honest here, Ryan. It, it took us, uh, I think second kid, kid number two, we have three now. I think kid number two is when we got, got our estate plan kind of working in progress and, and got a will. But yeah, it's, it's, it's essential. If you have Somebody that's going to be depending upon you if you die, then you need life insurance and you need a will. It's pretty simple because you don't want to get things hung up in the court system that would otherwise just go straight through if you had these documents in place. Yep. So we did a show about, I think about two months now, all about estate planning. So hopefully you guys downloaded that little cheat sheet that could walk you through. You input some of the information, the questions that were on there, and hopefully you guys are making progress to working with the estate planning attorney. I know it's cost that you're not going to be really excited to go pay a couple thousand for, but it's really important. Absolutely. Owning life insurance with no dependents. So this is an interesting one that I, I would say in a generality, I agree with, but there are several exceptions to this that I think he might be missing on this one. So if you are soon to be married or just married, but 
you know, your spouse makes good money, you might be thinking, well, we're good. We don't need anything. You know, this person is another physician and they make, you know, $300,000. Like, why do we need this stuff? Mm. That's a fallacy, especially if you at some point think you should have kids and similar to your disability where you didn't get it and then something happened and then you couldn't get it Mm -hmm. with term insurance. Like if you're young and you're healthy, you, maybe you don't go out and get $5 million, which, you know, if you'd say you could go out and get that, maybe you don't go get the whole thing if you don't know what's going to happen. But if you're like, look, I'm never getting married. I'm never having kids. And I don't care. My parents can fend for themselves. Don't go buy it. No. But if that's not you, I actually still think there's, there's a case for if you don't have dependents, but you likely want to have them, then you should still get it. Yeah. I mean, I could, I could see wealthy doc's point here in terms of it does cost money, but at the end of the day, I mean, life insurance is also assuming that you're healthy, not very expensive. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I want to say that I, I want to say we have you know, two or $3 million and it's like, you know, between my wife and I, I might be a little more than that. It's, it's like a hundred bucks a month or something silly. So it's not the most expensive thing in the world. It might be 150, but either way, you know, generally speaking, you should have someone dependent upon your income if you're going to get life insurance, but there are certainly, ex- you know, places and exceptions where it makes sense to have it, even if that's not true. Yep. So number eight was under saving and oh man, is this true? Like I could bump <laughs> this one up quite a bit Yeah, because <laughs> sure. uh, a lot of people, and, and I'm not making fun of, of you because I think this is just something that you weren't taught. That's why the whole podcast honestly exists, right? But sure. because you can make the payment every month does not mean you can afford it, right? And yeah. And everyone else, you might read Susie Orman might say something or Dave Ramsey, well, he he promotes a lot of saving, but you know the talking heads on CNBC, they might say, well, you need to save ten percent of your salary. Some might Not even enough. go as crazy as saving fifteen. It mm-hmm. isn't enough. You have ten plus years of a delayed start than someone yeah. else who just got an undergraduate degree and started working. Yeah, wealthy doc gets this right. I mean, he says that twenty percent is a bare minimum, and that you honestly probably ought to be saving thirty to forty percent if you want to reach financial independence before the age of 60 or 65. And I, th- I think that's spot on. Yeah. We, we like 25%. I think 25 works out really well with the math on, sure. on what you're doing, how you're doing it. Now we did have, and I will be talking about this at some point because I loved their question that they called in with that they were residents and going like, look, we can't afford 25%. Sure. As residents, it's survival. Just don't blow your yeah. stuff up. Yeah. Right. Get through it. If you save anything, you don't come out in crazy amounts of credit card debt for, you know, interviews or just blowing money, you're already ahead of the game. Oh, so this yeah, isn't, this is not, this part is not for you. This is for the attendings that come out and then they let their lifestyle inflate like crazy and then look back and go, uh oh, we have a hundred K of debt. And what do we do? Number nine, choosing the wrong asset allocation. I know we talked a bit about this with passive and active investments, but I'm curious to know what your thought is on the wrong asset allocation. Well, you know, so I actually, so I'm one of those people, I think that as long as you are making an intentional decision with good information, I, I don't put people in a box when it comes to personal finance a lot of the time. So there are lots of asset allocations that are reasonable. I mean, you could have three fund portfolio or the Bernstein no brainer, it's four funds, or you could have, you know, five funds, 10 funds. Uh, at some point it does become unnecessary because you're not getting really further diversification if you, you know, add more than, I don't know, what is it, five or seven. But at the same time, like, you know, I, I don't really say that there's a perfect 
allocation out there. And everyone, everyone has different interests too. I do think that index is better than passive. And I do think that you need to have some bonds in your portfolio. Although when I first started, I had hundred percent stocks for a little bit while I was paying down student loans. That said, I think that the assets to bonds conversation is a little more important than the, the, which funds do you choose just because, you know, people oftentimes nowadays in this market, that's been going straight up for 10 years, uh, have a hard time understanding why they need bonds in their portfolio. And so I, I do think that that part's important and, and wealthy doc hits on that in his post. Yeah. It, you know, I'll be honest, I have no bonds in my portfolio and the reason and there you go. Yeah. And it's, this is not mean it is right for because everyone. You have a whole life insurance policy, right? Of course I have like $5 million a whole life. I'm paying it. No, I'm just kidding. The reason why we don't is because we are paying off our home mortgage quicker than we are just making the minimum payments. And I'm viewing that as a proxy to bonds. The more that so, I pay down. Huh, we need to have a podcast on this sometime. Oh boy. All right. <laughs> but I, I will, we'll cut it and we'll, let's do one for this. But you know, I'm viewing paying off our house um, and we did pay off Taylor student debt and all that, but we're now paying down our house. And I view that as a better proxy for me personally to, to do that. Now clients, totally different story because most people don't understand their ability and their need to take risk mm-hmm. as well as, as I do. And that's completely understandable because I nerd out on this all the time. So we do recommend bonds for clients. So it's a do what I say, not what I do situation. Not technically. Cause there, I mean, there are some pieces where we've, we've had it, but but currently, you're good, man. It, it, this is important for people to know and understand sure. because what I say and what I do are unique to me, yeah, right? Personal finance is personal. Exactly. So what makes sense for me might not make sense for Jimmy. It might not make sense for anyone else other than me. Yep. But the way yeah. that we're looking at this for right now is we had a ton of student debt when we paid that down. We've been kind of plowing money into our uh, our home and trying to pay that down pretty aggressively. And so if I was to have bonds, just for the record, it would have been 10% mm-hmm. of my allocation because I am a very aggressive investor personally, very That's aggressive. So if I did that, the 10% is not going to make or break that much for me. And I would just Probably rather right. toss it into, into the house. And cause I, I would love to be debt-free, like truly debt-free. Most people think debt-free is that plural, but I have a mortgage. No, no, no. Debt-free <laughs> yes. is truly debt-free. debt-free. Exclude the house. Yeah. School, <laughs> the house, the mortgage, the car. Yeah, I'm yeah. good. But if I frame it that way, it makes me feel so much better. It's true. It's totally true. All right. Trusting the untrustworthy is number 10. And I think we've kind of harped on some of the financial planner mm. and insurance salesman in that. But I, I agree uh, with that. I'm going to let you handle the last two because these are real fun. Yeah. Number yeah. 11, cheating and divorce. Don't worry. Well, number 12 is way better. Oh, yeah. 12, yeah. Well, they're both kind of, I mean, they're kind of related in a way. I mean, you could combine these two. But yeah, I, I think that the idea of, honestly, if we're going to spend an entire segment of a show talking about personal finance and investing in important financial topics, you should probably invest in your marriage. Uh, you know, that's generally speaking the best advice that I can give anybody, you know, and, and it's, it's funny how the most important financial topics actually aren't about money. But uh, yeah, so- Funny, well, funny but not funny. Because that, fun, I mean, all I of this funny, is- I mean, yeah, ironic. I, it's ironic because- Everything's interrelated. And that's why we talk so much on behavioral finance and how your relationship with money matters, but also like relationships. And we talked about money dates and getting financially frisky with your spouse. I mean, these are things that get you guys just having open lines of communication because it not just by helping you have open lines of communication with your finances, 
it's just going to make overall your conversations better. Yeah. And I, and I'm, I'm hundred percent behind that, you know, and, and that's why I, I support life planning and the kinder questions, which, you know, we've talked about before because it gets people on the same page about money topics and, and having those, those frisky financial dates. But you know, it's, it's divorce. It, you lose half your stuff. That's kind of a tough thing to handle if you're trying to get the financial independence and, and wealthy doc saying that you probably should avoid it if you can. And he, he, to be fair, mentions cheating. So I guess, I guess there's that one particular topic for him. People want to get divorced for other reasons. Yeah. We'll let him cover that. We'll tag him okay. on social. We'll let him this. talk about it. Number 12, though, have at this one. Losing your medical mm. license to sex and drugs. You know, I, I think that he just wanted to put something uh, out there that. It was a little clickbaity, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Because this one, little, like, thankfully, <laughs> like, thankfully, we have not really dealt with this one. Yeah, no. But it, I don't know if this is true for every state, but North Carolina, the medical board publishes this paper. I think it's once a quarter. And it lists all of the things that, you know, physicians that have had probations or reprimands or whatever about, and then it tells you what they did. I have some friends that like really look out and like look forward to that quarterly newsletter because they, they just think it's so fun to read because it's just interesting and full of, you're like, they did what? You know, so, so as crazy, as crazy as number 12 sounds on Wealthy Doc's list, like this stuff really does happen. And uh, oh, I mean, of course it happens, I mean, but they're human. And he talks about not getting addicted to Oxycontin, which of course is, is interesting now that Purdue is, is going down, but yeah, it's a, it's an interesting way to end the post. Yeah. I love it. Well, you know, we'll make sure to tag wealthy doc on our social media so you can find this post quickly and make sure you follow him. He's a great guy and he's got great content. And Absolutely. if you aren't following us, you know what you need to do. Follow That's us on right. social at financial residency, pretty much everywhere. So again, thank you so much for being here and being part of the community please don't be shy. Hit us up in the community. Please share our show with other physicians and their families so we can help many more physicians understand and take control over their finances. Have a great week, everyone. See you guys on Friday. See ya.